Now, I very rarely will do this at the beginning of a sermon, but I'm going to tell you, don't try and keep your Bibles open. Now, you might think, what's happened? He's gone, he's gone totally liberal overnight. No, the thing is, we're looking at lots of different verses in the Bible tonight. We're, we're doing a, a sort of a thematic sermon. If you try and f- keep flipping between them, it'll do your head in. They're all going to appear on the screen behind me. But here's the second thing to say to you. Do become a note taker. Uh, we have pitiful few note takers as a church that takes the Bible seriously. Almost every other church I go to that takes the Bible seriously has more note takers than us. Now, it might be you're better than me. I can't remember what I preached about five minutes after I preach it, let alone live it out, for which I am forever ashamed. You might be able to remember what I preach. Um, I'm not going to come around and test you, don't worry, on Wednesday. But um, if you're not a note-taker and you struggle to remember, note-taking is a great thing to do. I, I never keep the notes I take, but it's the way that I concentrate and remember when I'm struggling in a, in a sermon. So if uh, note-taking is something you might think about, why not think about taking notes? Especially when dealing with a doctrinal sermon, because you're going to go all over the shop. Um, so hang in there with me. Let's pray as we come to God's Word together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you're the God who knows our hearts already. You know our minds already. You know what we're like already. You know our struggles. You know our doubts. You know our fears. You know our failures. Uh, you know as we come this evening uh, how we come, whether we're wishing we hadn't come, uh, whether we're hungry for your word or whether our hearts are already hardening. And yet you still love us. You love us so much that you gave your only son. And you long to speak to us. So by the power of your spirit, speak to us personally, individually, speak to us what we need, speak to us where we're at, and draw us to Christ, that we might know your love more, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Now, I was at Waterloo Station not long ago, surrounded by this huge throng of people, busy, 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 a massive crowd, and I found myself looking out at them and thinking, most of these people aren't Christians. Most of them don't believe what I believe. In fact, most of them think I am bonkers to believe the Bible. Can they all be wrong? Perhaps, perhaps I'm wrong. You ever felt like that? Suddenly being conscious that your life is based on something that the majority of people around you don't believe. I were daily bombarded with messages through our media that paint Christians as small-minded, slightly delusional group of out-of-date weirdos. And at work, you're surrounded by people who think you're either mad or even maybe bad for believing the good news about Jesus. It is no wonder that we doubt. But doubt isn't really talked about in church. Where do you go with your doubts when you've got that lovely pastor who always seems so certain about what what he's saying, so convinced? He's not going to understand. And all the people around you seem to to sing their songs with a big smile on their face and happy gusto, apart from that tricky bridge bit that no one knows how to sing. We're, We're all getting stuck into the songs. They won't understand. And that life group, it never quite seems to be appropriate to say, I'm not sure actually I really believe this. So we don't talk about doubt. You don't admit them. And then they quietly grow. And you retreat from these smiley certain people at church and hang out more with a crowd of non-Christian friends who actually you feel you might have more in common with. And then you begin to wonder if you ever really believed. Because you, you don't ever feel you, 
you seriously, emotionally engaged, connected even, with that, that, that God that felt just a bit distant. I mean, people talk about Jesus as a friend, but, but a lot of the time, he didn't feel that close. See, doubt can be a, a serious problem. But, but doubts are also a great thing. Because the Bible is full of people expressing their doubt. Uh, famously, the disciple Thomas. Uh, his name has become a byword for doubt. So John 20, 25. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were put and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You don't go asking to poke around in someone's open wounds if you really think you're going to have to, do you? King David cries out in Psalm 13, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? The Apostle Paul acknowledges the questions his readers might have in in Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Presumably, some people were feeling God wasn't very much for them. See, the Bible encourages us to question, to wrestle, to bring our doubts to God and to one another. That's actually how real our relationship with our gracious God is. He doesn't demand unthinking, blind obedience. He calls us to know him personally, intimately. And part of that relationship is working out why and how we can trust him, working through our doubts. Because as Mark pointed out, the the opposite of doubt is faith. Now, Now people have all sorts of strange ideas about faith, that it's a believing the unbelievable, a sort of a sanctified form of being very gullible. Or people say things like, oh, I I wish I had your faith. As though faith is some sort of quality we have, a a genetic, special religious sort of gene that enables us to be Christians, but unfortunately they don't have the religious gene, so they can't be Christians. But but faith, of course, is simply trust. In the Bible, the words faith, belief, trust, they all came from the same root word. And Hebrews 11.1 defines faith as... Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's to trust something or somebody and to have confidence in them, to to be assured. So say I text you and ask you to come to a lunch at uh, Rona's. You show faith in me by turning up next Saturday at the time we agreed. You haven't seen me send the text. You won't see me leave my house and walk to Rona's. But you trust me, so you go to the cafe and you wait for me. That is faith. And Christian faith is simply an active trust in the God of the Bible who reveals himself fully and finally in his son, Jesus Christ. But what if we're struggling to trust that the the gospel, that good news about Jesus, is true? What if we're in two minds? We're debating within ourselves internally whether we're right about this. How does the Bible help us with our doubts about the facts? We're going to see three things tonight. Before we wade into them, let me recommend a a book written by a guy who used to be a a colleague of mine in Preston, Keep the Faith by Martin Ayres. 
not sure if uh, it's still in print, it's a Matthias Media book. It's a great little book on the question of intellectual doubt. Well worth a Christmas stocking filler. Here's the first thing we need to see. That doubts are normal, remember the fall. Doubts are normal, remember the fall. You see, your mind is not neutral. The human mind is not neutral. Our reading from John chapter 3 made that clear. After that most famous verse in the Bible, where we hear of the incredible love of God that he gives his one and only son for a world that hates him, a world that, that rejects him, we read this in verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. See, the light of God's love has come in Jesus. But people won't acknowledge it. They won't come into the light because they love a world where they get to do what they want to do. They love darkness. Now, we might think it's a bit strong to say that people without Jesus love evil. But in the end, we all like the idea of a world where we can get away with the wrong things that we do. People reject the truth about Jesus because they want a world without God's just and loving rule. They want to do what they want to do. We saw the same thing. We were studying Romans earlier this year. So Romans 1.18 tells us, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. See, the world around us provides more than enough evidence that we're creatures of a creator. But people suppress the truth about God. Uh, The word suppress has that that idea of you trying to, say, squeeze your clothes into a a suitcase that's slightly too small and they they keep coming out and you have to keep shoving the edge of your shirt in and and squeezing it down. And if you don't hold it down, it'll spring open again. It's an active rejection of the evidence of a loving creator because we'd rather be God in our own lives. And the result of that comes in the next verse, in verse 21 of Romans 1. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, by nature, human beings are not neutral to the things of God. Our thinking is futile, and our hearts are darkened. Now, that's vital to remember when we come to our doubts. You see, our culture has told us, really since the Enlightenment in the 17th century, that our minds are neutral, that we're rational beings, and what we do is we sift through the evidence and make informed decisions based solely on facts. But our minds are never neutral. We always come subjectively to everything with our own presuppositions about it. Now, some of those are to do with where we've grown up or how we've been brought up. But the biggest subjective view we've had since the fall, since that moment when the first man and woman rejected God's truth in Genesis 3, is this. We are wired to reject the truth about God. And all people naturally do that. Now, tennis has got a bit less fun, I think, since Hawkeye has come in. 
Because in the good old days when I was growing up, uh, John McEnroe could explode in rage about a line called, you cannot be serious. The ball was in. And then for the next five minutes, there was actually no way of telling whether he was right or the umpire was right as he got angrier and angrier and angrier. But now you have this thing where you can just request three, three reviews, a set or something, isn't it? And the result is that Hawkeye replays and shows the ball whether it was really in or whether it was just wishful thinking on part of the player. Because I don't think it's that tennis players are trying to deliberately cheat all the time. And even when Hawkeye shows that the ball they thought was in was miles out, it's that they're viewing the game through their own lens about their passionate desire to win. And therefore, what they see is always slanted towards them being right, towards the ball being in if they want it in, or out if they want it out. And that's the way the human mind is. It's not that that people, everyone, is consciously denying things they know to be true about God. Rather, that we view reality through the lens of us being in charge of our own lives. And the result is... We can't see the truth. We always want it our own way. So in uh, 2003, Dan Brown famously published The Da Vinci Code. It was a page-turning thriller. Its publicity, of course, claimed to be based on academic research and long-lost documents, the true Gospels of Jesus, rather than the doctored ones we have in the Bible. Of course, it wasn't. Brown wasn't really claiming to be a scholar. It wasn't actually even a particularly well-written book, which is why it made a disastrous film. But the book sold like hotcakes. My non-Christian brother-in-law, who basically pretty much read absolutely nothing for pleasure, consumed the Da Vinci Code. But more worryingly, people believed it, unquestioningly. Even Christians found their faith was shaken by it. Why? Because it told us exactly what our sinful minds want to hear. All this Christian stuff is bunkum. And if you do read the Da Vinci Code, you'll find what you need to do is get on and have some more sex to experience the divine. It told us what we want to hear. And people believe it. That's why Jesus says to the Jewish religious leader, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. In other words, God has to work in you by his Spirit So you understand who Jesus is and that you want to follow him. Now, there are two applications that that I think really help us with our doubts in the light of this fact that we're all fallen. The first is this. Don't be surprised to be surrounded by unbelief. Uh, The American philosopher and atheist Thomas Nagel is humble enough to admit this. He writes this. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. Do you know what he's saying? I know I'm wired to reject God's authority. I just don't want him there. I'm not neutral. 
So sadly, it's normal for human beings to reject God. More than that, it's normal for them to seem unable to grasp things that seem self-evidently true for us if you're a Christian. For instance, I'm repeatedly told by my friends who aren't Christians that they can't believe in miracles because miracles don't happen. Science has shown that they don't happen. Well, that's self-evidently a ridiculous statement because by definition, a miracle has to be something that goes beyond the usual expectations and patterns of how the natural world operates. Now, the disciples might have been you know, quite impressed if Jesus had said, when the waters got a bit choppy on the lake in Mark 4, it's, uh, okay, lads, the prevailing wind patterns and the lie of the land mean the storm will die down in the next couple of hours. But they wouldn't have said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That's why Jesus got up and he said, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. So don't be thrown by the unbelief of others. However nice and kind and intelligent and rational they appear, they're fallen. It's normal. Here's the second application. Don't be surprised by your doubts. See, though God has opened our minds, if we're Christians, to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and he's opened our hearts to accept his love and to love him in return, we are still a work in progress. And we know that about our behavior, don't we? We recognize we still have a sinful nature, and we daily battle against lust and lies, against greed and anger. And where do all those sins come from? Well, they come from our minds. They come from our thoughts, don't they? So why do we think that our intellectual thinking is any more neutral than our moral thinking? It isn't. So just as there's a battle to behave fully in the way Jesus wants, so there's a battle to believe fully what Jesus teaches us. Our sinful nature still wants us to deny the truth about Christ, even as the Bible is, as the Spirit is feeding us that truth from the Bible. That's why the best thing you can do with your doubts is share them, discuss them with other Christians, pray for one another in them. And the worst thing you can do with your doubts is to take yourself away from church, away from Bible study, and do some neutral thinking and reading on your own. You're not neutral. Neither am I. No one is. Doubt is normal. Remember the fall. A word of reassurance. The second two points are a lot briefer. Here's the second one. Doubts aren't rational. Remember the facts. Do you remember one of the, uh, the common ways that people describe Christian faith? Believing the unbelievable. And let's face it, don't know about you, I never met, and I have never met, the physical risen Lord Jesus. I've never had a, a heavenly vision. And quite a lot of the time, I don't feel that emotionally connected in a very real and tangible way to things that I absolutely believe are true. Now, when you couple this to our culture that says only observable science can be trusted and all history is largely guesswork and opinion, then you can see why we struggle sometimes to, to answer our unbelieving friends effectively or even to answer ourselves effectively. But we've established humanity isn't rational. It's sinful. And therefore always wired to call its decisions about God in and to call its decisions about us, God's decisions about us, out. 
So, so we begin to see our doubts can be answered by the facts of the gospel. And that's what the Bible writers do. So uh, the Lord Jesus, after he's dead, he, he meets his disciples, having been raised from the dead, who, who are struggling to believe. Now listen to what happens in Luke 24. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. Now, if even the disciples who have the risen Lord Jesus standing in front of them doubt, it shouldn't surprise us that we do from time to time. But you see how Jesus answers their doubts. I'm the ghost. I'm physically risen. Come and touch me, see. But, but even that doesn't convince them. Perhaps they're thinking it's too good to be true. Or perhaps they're still in a state of shock. So what does he do? Picks up a, a bit of fish in their presence and eats it. Come on, dead men don't eat fish. I'm really here, says Jesus. And the thing is, the first readers of Luke's gospel, they'd have known the men who'd seen that. They'd have been able to go and ask them, were you really there when Jesus ate that fish? And did he really eat the fish? And the answer would have been, yes, he was. I was there. But, but Jesus also answers his disciples in another way. He, he goes on in verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. See, it's not just the events of Jesus' life were seen by eyewitnesses and written down within a lifetime for us to read. I've just started watching The World at War again, narrated by Lawrence of Olivier. People of a certain age will be going, oh, I remember that series. Others will be going, I have no clue what you're talking about. Recorded in the 70s, it has interviewed people who lived through the Second World War. It was within their lifetime. It's a documentary. You take what they say to be real and true because they saw it. They were the friends of Hitler. So we have the gospel accounts written down by eyewitnesses in Jesus' lifetime. But, but even more than that, Jesus says they are a fulfillment of almost 2,000 years of promise recorded in the Old Testament of the Bible. That's the way that the Bible primarily proves who Jesus is. Look at the way he fulfills the law, the prophets, the Psalms, everything that's been written over 2,000 years of the history of God's people. The Apostle Paul makes the same point as he encourages some Christians in Corinth to stand firm in their faith. Let me read you 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here's the fact that Christ died for our sins. Here's the fulfillment, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and was raised on the third today. Fact, according to the scriptures. Fulfillment. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. See what Paul's saying? That there are some still alive. If you don't believe me, just go down the road and, and ask them. Go and find them. That they saw Jesus. Now, now, we can't go and find them. But that doesn't mean we can't believe the testimony of the Bible. In fact, Jesus says we're better off than those who saw and touched him. Do you remember Doubting Thomas, who got the grossest offer ever given by the Lord Jesus Christ? John twenty twenty seven. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, true blessing, all the blessing God can give, comes through believing the testimony of the apostles about his son, Jesus, the son of God, the Christ, in whom we have life. But, but did you notice how Thomas spoke, Jesus spoke to Thomas? He, he said, stop doubting and believe. It's, it's hardly like compassionate counseling, is it? Why, why is he so brutal with him? Why does he speak like that? Well, it's because of the last thing we're going to see. So, so far we've seen dad is normal, Remember, we're all fallen. Doubts aren't rational. Remember, there are facts. And here's the last thing. Doubts are disobedience. Remember your Redeemer. Doubts are disobedience. Remember your Redeemer. Because in the end, our doubts aren't just about what we think. They're about what we want to do. A sin came into the world when Satan sowed the first seed of doubt about the Word of God. God really say? Did he? No, but he did Eve. You're, you'll be okay. Eat. Do what you want. I almost uh, didn't become a Christian. And when I first understood the gospel, uh, the speaker brilliantly didn't hide the cost of following Christ. Didn't just sell me Jesus as Savior. He said, if you want to be a Christian, Jesus has to be your Lord. And I could see that was going to be morally inconvenient. I was a 19-year-old rugby-playing lout, and God didn't seem to fit into that equation. The problem is, when God's got a hold on you, he's got a hold on you. And I, I couldn't resist his grace as he, he dragged me into his arms and into the kingdom of his son, Jesus. But I still didn't want it to be true a lot of the time. I, I fought to live life the way I wanted I had to keep finding my security in, in drinking too much or, or in the physical frills I could get. But the problem I had was I couldn't re- get rid of Jesus in history. You see, my intellectual doubts were driven by my moral desires. I didn't want to obey God, so I definitely didn't go to my college CU. I didn't want to hang out with those nice Christians because they just made me feel guilty. I didn't go to church regularly. Not because I had an intellectual problem, I had an obedience problem. And most of our intellectual doubts have an idolatrous desire behind them. Either it's something we value, or something that we love more than the Lord Jesus, that means we don't want to believe. Uh, We saw that in uh, Hebrews that we studied in the morning uh, just about a year ago. 
Uh, The writer urges his readers this. It's Hebrews 3.12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What's leading to the Hebrews' unbelief? It's not an intellectual doubt. It's their sinful hearts that don't want to stand for Christ. In the context, it seems the the problem amongst the Hebrew Christians was that they were being persecuted for following Christ. So if following Jesus obediently meant you got a tough time for it, well, they didn't fancy that. So they were slowly giving up on what they believed. And I was chatting to a mama a little while ago, and she'd been struggling with doubt. Uh, The result was that she'd been to church less. And she was incredibly honest. She very honestly told me why. She said that she knew that if her kids grew up as Christians, then they'd get more stick at school. Uh, That actually they may not be able to get into their chosen careers. That their lives would be harder. It wasn't that she had suddenly developed questions about the truth of the Bible. It was that she loved her kids and saw in the culture of our world at the moment that following Jesus Christ was going to be a real problem. And she liked what the world offered them more than what it appeared Jesus offered them. Now, now she's one of many people who begin to doubt because in the end they don't want to obey. Or it's because they're dating a lovely non-Christian girl. Or they want their kids to be able to enjoy sport on a Sunday morning like everyone else. Or their work demands their time and energy and gives them the status and money that everyone else admires. So they just don't make midweek Bible study and they're at church less and less regularly. And when you go around, they say, well, I'm just struggling to believe. And eventually, I'm not sure I ever really believe. Uh, The Puritans were great Christians of the uh, 17th and 18th century. And they had a saying, it's this. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What we love, we choose to do, and then we develop our reasoning as to why we can do it. That's why in John 3.20, Jesus said, Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. We don't want to come into the light of the truth about Jesus because we want to hang on to our disobedience. The, the other side of the coin is what Jesus says a little bit later in John seven seventeen. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words... The proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you seek to live out a life of obedience, says the Lord Jesus, to me, you'll find that I truly am the Son of God, that what I say is true. And that's why we need to help one another to remember our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the writer to Hebrews is under no illusion about how much encouragement we need. Do you remember that verse, Hebrews 3.13? Encourage one another daily, 
as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The writer of the Hebrews is basically saying, every day is called today. (laughs) Is today called today? Yes, you need encouraging. Will tomorrow be called today when we get to tomorrow? Yes, you'll need someone to encourage you. Tuesday, that'll be today when we get to it. You'll need encouraging. In fact, as long as it keeps being today, you will need someone to encourage you. Otherwise, you'll start to doubt because you're fallen. That's the way you're wired. So we need to be honest with each other in our struggles and doubts. Why not be the first person at life group or in your hub group to say, you know, I'm really struggling just to believe this. Or I don't really want to believe this because I can see that that might mean I have to change. It's very likely that a lot of other people there will be thinking exactly the same way as you are. We're all fallen people with futile thinking and sinful desires. So we need to help each other to keep the truth about Jesus central. We need to remember our Redeemer, our beautiful Savior, the the one who has died to deal with all our doubts. And then with the Father in Mark chapter 9. Do you remember him? He's struggling to believe that Jesus can really heal his little boy, but he's desperate that he would heal his little boy. And what does he pray? I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let's pray together. Father, we do believe, and yet we have so many doubts. Uh, Sometimes they seem distant and dim and we're really rocking and rolling with the Lord Jesus Christ and it's all so clear and we're passionate about it. But sometimes it feels like wave upon wave of doubt rolls in and we're struggling and, and everyone else seems keener on the Christian thing than we are. We want to say to you tonight, we do believe, oh, but please help us overcome our unbelief. Help us help each other. Help us to be honest with each other. I thank you, our Father, your word is clear about the world we live in and clear about our own hearts. But thank you most of all that you know us intimately and personally. And in the Lord Jesus, you have done everything to forgive us um, all of the sinfulness of our doubts. And by the power of your Spirit, you've put within us Uh, all that we need to keep walking with you. Therefore, please, our Father, uh, would we come to you with our doubts and find the glorious truth of the gospel. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.